This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Talking about Doug Ford, now the PC leader, uh, sorry, now the leader of the PC party of Ontario. Here's what he had to say after all the fun. (laughs) Tonight, we took the first step in defeating Kathleen Wynne. The people of Ontario want the Ontario Liberals gone. And they deserve nothing less. All right, let's bring in Alex Pearson, host of On Point with Alex Pearson, heard right here on CHML. And she is with us now. Alex, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Are you awake? Barely. Yeah. <laughs> but I got to be honest. You know, I, I was watching. Was I was so exhausted yesterday. Yeah. I was watching your tweets. I thought, we're going to have to jettison this woman some clothes and toiletries <laughs> so she can spend the night there. Just some slippers. Yeah, really. Just some slippers. Well, I wore the wrong shoes. I thought, oh, it'll just be a couple of hours. And I wore like the ridic- most ridiculous high heels. There you go. And by like seven o'clock, I, I, I was hobbling around the place. No, you should have been in track. You should have been in track pants and running shoes, man. Brought I your pillow. That. Yeah, I should have. Yeah. No, you know what? I think it's important that we point out that leaderships never are—they're never straightforward. So this this hysteria around uh, the disorganization. Yeah, it was disorganized. It was put together in record speed in just a couple of weeks. You know, they they lost a leader. So um, they're at the best of times a bit of a, a cluster duck. Um, but you know, by end of night. Wow, I'm surprised uh, you can yeah. say that without you know getting yourself in trouble. There, I would have accidentally said the wrong word. Oh, well, I had to think very carefully for two or three seconds to say D D D, say the D. <laughs> <laughs> so, what was the atmosphere like? Because of course, we're seeing on the news, you know, people booing and, and, and <clears throat> yeah. you know cheering, and it was quite yeah. a wide range of emotion. How did this all shake down? Well, look, everyone was expecting that we would have results by 5 o'clock because this great, wonderful technology, which, by the way, the feds should look at this and say, maybe we're not quite ready for that uh, federal election to be run uh, by computers. But, um, you know, you have a lot of members there. You have all the candidates there. You've got the party faithful there. And you've also got all of the caucus members there who have literally been living their lives under constant fire for six weeks. These are people who had been full steam ahead to an election and their whole worlds were, were forced upside down. And as you know, Scott, it's been relentless, just day after day of negative headlines. So there's been real um, thirst and, and a hunger to get a leader in place. And these things are always very emotional because you've got camps of people. You've got the Mulroney teams, the Elliott teams, and the Ford team. And they're all normally on one t- side, but then in a leadership campaign, they're all pitted against one another. So you'll get people who have worked together for decades all of a sudden uh, against each other. It's the, it's the most bizarre thing. The best of friends can all of a sudden become the worst of enemies. And then once a leader's picked, they're hugging again. That's what leadership, uh, you know, leadership um, uh, conferences are all about. And so we got a leader. And for those, and I got to be honest, when it was coming up to the vote, going back and forth of the recount of what was going on, I mean, it looked like there was a funeral. I think people that did not want Doug Ford were really concerned. Um, but, you know, the day after, when you started to see the tweets of approval coming in, Elliot, you know, conceded, and Lisa McLeod and the party started to kind of throw their support behind it, you see the party unite right away. And I think from here on out, you're going to see nothing but uniting behind Doug Ford. So what did happen? Why was the concern uh, from the from the Elliot camp? And, you know, someone made a comment, and, you know, this is probably true. If it would, if it would have been the other way around and it was Doug Ford that refused to uh, concede, they probably this story probably would have taken a totally different turn. Uh, so what was the problem? Why would did she why did she wait so long to throw in the towel? Well, there were some questions about um, ridings where they had certain uh, postal codes in one riding that were showing up in other ridings, and they had to go through those to see where those actual ballots went. But it was it was known from fairly early on that Doug Ford had won. It was very very close, and so it wouldn't have mattered if it was Doug Ford or Christine Elliott. Both camps would have wanted to make sure that everything was done properly. And there was just no question as the night came to a close. And once we realized that the party was ready to make a decision, there's no question that Doug Ford went one because that party, um, remember he would not have been their number one choice. They wanted Christine Elliott. She is the establishment that they want. She was right. much easier to get uh, elected. And so if for them to come out and say, yes, we've done the math, the numbers add up, everything is how it is. 
is absolute. So there's no question he won. She might have won the popular vote, but that's not how the system is set up. He took ridings that had bigger profile in in the pointing system, um, and she got votes from from more people. So it's an interesting way that they do it. But what's also really important to note is that Doug Ford picked up support in areas that the Conservatives have never been in play. This is really vital because while downtown Toronto can laugh and mock at Ford Nation and stick their nose up in the air as they will, outside of Toronto, uh, certainly 519-905, but you go to the GTA to Mississauga, you go all around Scarborough, that is Ford Nation and they have a voice and they want him and they're a really big, powerful vote. And I think it's important that people understand Outside of Toronto, which only looks at itself in these things, which carries the balance of power to choose who will lead this province, the rest of the province has been completely ignored for the last 15 yeah, years. You yeah. go up north, you go to areas of southwestern Ontario where manufacturing has been decimated. They hate Toronto for a reason, because they have no voice. And you know what Doug Ford affords them? That. You said something interesting, though, Alex. You said, you know, or alluded to the party brass, uh, yeah. to the party brass. Uh, Christine Elliott was a much easier, is much easier to get elected. So mm-hmm. what does that say now about the PC party? Does the PC party have the best person in place to beat Kathleen Wynne? If the, uh, par- if the party obviously thought that it was much easier to get Christine Elliott elected than it is Ford. Well, you know, this is an interesting question, and it's one that I will answer in my monologue tonight on my show, is that the sooner the mainstream media and the sooner the party elite, or quote-unquote, start to look and listen to the people of this province, they will start to understand that there is a voice that's gone ignored for a long time. We're not actually watching a political race anymore. This is a movement. This is a movement of people, whether you're right, left, or... or, um, you know, NDP, that is saying, you know what, the last 15 years we've given you every chance in the world and my life has not gotten easier. You preach to me how to behave and you tell me what I should do morally and we're supposed to be nice and fair and my life is not getting easier. We've got nurses being fired, doctors without a contract, you've got teachers who are are exhausted and they're not teaching the math and the English, they're going into these ideologies and our kids are failing school and they're saying, what the heck's going on in this province? And that's someone uh, Doug Ford will have a lot of appeal for because he will give them a voice. So those are the, that's the movement we're seeing now where they're starting to push back against the party and saying, you know what, we've tried it your way with the Patrick Brown. We tried to move more center. We tried to keep our mouth shut about important social conservative issues that we want to address, and we're not going to be ignored anymore. And so I think those who mock him or underestimate Doug Ford do so at their own peril. So uh, will he do better than Patrick Brown would have done in the, in yep. the position? Yes, absolutely. The problem Patrick Brown faced is that he was unknown. The other, well, there were several problems. Um, the other issue for the grassroots is that he was not running as a conservative. And I get why he, he planned the way he was going to run, because for you to struggle against the, the narrative in the media of carbon taxes and greenhouse gases and all this stuff and the Green Energy Act that the, that the liberals will continue to throw um, and, and hold over everyone's head. You know, he wanted to take that issue off the table, so he came up with a carbon tax, but it was so deeply unpopular with the base. I mean, you can dress yeah. that thing up any way yeah. you want, Scott. It is a tax, and it does nothing for the environment. So anyone who supports it, I, I respect you, but you got to understand, that is nothing but a tax grab that goes into a trough and then gets wasted on some scandal or some fix that we've been seeing. And so that's um, you know, he's going to get rid of that. And I think he's going to finally run as a conservative. He believes in low taxes. He's a businessman. So businesses who have been crushed under regulation, who have been crushed under increased um, costs of running, hydro, he's going to address those kinds of things. So he will have mass appeal. The other interesting thing, and I think what comes into play for Hamilton and Sudbury and Sault Ste. Marie, he is a guy who can march off down to the Rust Belt and meet with the people and the actual leaders of the industry and the state uh, uh, and governors and say, hey, now, now, we're not playing this game. He will, and I asked him about this, what will you do to protect our industries from things like tariffs? He could probably do a pretty good job of fighting back against that. It was something that he wanted to do. And then on the flip side, he is very passionate about opiates. 
opioid um, protection and, and, and getting people off of them, obviously, from his own personal experience. But mm. that's something that is very close to home. He wants to have an opioid program. Mental health spending is very big. So he might actually keep that plank of the people's guarantee, which is one. That was my next question, dollars. Alex. Yeah. How, yeah. Does, how do you meld what, what Patrick Brown's people's guarantee was to what he is? Because obviously, you know, he spoke up about carbon tax. He talked about sex ed. Hopefully we don't yeah. go down that avenue again. Oh, that was overblown. He won't. He, I think, he, look, I don't have a problem toning it down, but he's not going to go down that. The media and or the union and the fear mongering of the liberals, that's, that's what they're going to do. They're going to wedge him on that and say, ooh, he's going to take your ovaries. Ooh, he's going to take away abortion rights. Ooh, he's going to take away sex ed. No. what He's, he's going to take do, your ovaries, Alex. <laughs> what he's going to do <laughs> is he's going to open the curriculum. And I have heard from many, many teachers who are so frustrated. They're saying, look, we are teaching too much ideology you know, like the social justice warrior stuff, but we're not actually teaching the kids what they need, and we want to get back to that. So teachers have a vested interest in making sure that they can get back into doing what they do really well. But the sex ed thing, I think there's room to um, to look at it, to scale it back to maybe some of the older grades, but he's not getting rid of it. And the abortion issue is not an issue because it's a federal mandate. Yeah. And I, I just think people need to move beyond that and, and realize those things aren't going to be taken away. I would never vote for somebody who was going to be a threat to that. So um, I think folks are going to have to get beyond the noise and start really looking at the policies and also taking a look at who your candidate is. We have some um, very interesting pockets of the, of the province, but some really good candidates that are running. New faces, new blood. Take a look at your local candidate and see what do they offer you and how are they going to fight for your, your best interests. How will... Uh, uh, do you think having Doug Ford there is a gift for the Liberals or not for nope. Kathleen Wynne? I think and, he's a worse nightmare. And, and 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 my next question: How does what does Donald Trump do to avoid the comparisons to the wacky white ring populists and Donald Trump comparisons and all of that sort of thing? Because you know they're going to try to paint that picture. Well, they already have, but they were trying to paint Patrick Brown as that. I'm like, I, I could only wish he was that exciting. I mean, Donald Trump is is um. He's not, Doug Ford is nothing like Donald Trump. The only thing they have in common is that they kind of say what's on their mind. But he's nowhere near um, that kind of reckless. And it's interesting, in the last couple of years, um, as I've followed him and interviewed him and dealt with him on the mayoral issues and city council and and, uh, all the stuff with Rob, he has, in fact, matured and grown. And I get the sense that we're going to see a Doug who is finally standing independently, where he's not putting out fires for Rob Ford. He's not trying to make excuses for his, his younger brother, who obviously had a terrible illness. Um, and so he's going to be tested, finally, on his own merit to see what he has to offer. And um, he doesn't have to follow the rules. That's the interesting thing about Doug Ford. He makes up the rules. And I think people will find that very, very refreshing. Where does yeah. where does this leave the NDP? Is this Andrea Horvath's best? Is this Andrea Horvath's best shot? Well, where's she been? Where the heck has she been? I mean, she has had six weeks of a Hagersville type, you know, inferno going on in the PC party, and she's been non-existent. If I had been advising her, I would have said, you get your plan out right now and you start campaigning that plan. You start taking But every time she opens up her every time she opens up her poor her poor bag, it seems that Kathleen Wynne steals it all. So, you know, would it would it be would it be smart for her to to unleash the goodies before election time? Because considering how much of of her campaign that uh, the liberals have already stolen. Yeah, look, there's no question that Kathleen Wynne is going to outleft and continue to outleft and continue to outleft Andrea Horvath. And knowing that and being beaten by that in the last election, Andrea Horvath should have known that. Um, but she has really kind of been non-existent. And now, you know, we hear the allegations that came out on Bill Kelly's show of the bullying allegations and all the rest of it, which I think may turn into a bit of a headache for her because she certainly cast stone you know, you shouldn't do that maybe if you live in a glass house. But I do think it's problematic for her because now Doug Ford from here until Election Day, Scott, and then beyond is going to take all the air out of the room. And Kathleen Wynne, you know, she's already on her heels saying, but he's going to cut, 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 and I'm going to spend, 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 which is like, exactly, that's why you have to go. But Andrea Horvath, you're missing your opportunity. 
this is where she should be coming up and saying, you know what, Kathleen, out you go. Here's how it goes. But she doesn't seem to be kind of in a rush to get that that policy out or or take a take a position. That's why she's getting drowned out. What about uh, the fact that there was no big speech? The I saw them taking down the big yeah. net of balloons. <laughs> we didn't even get to pull the balloons down. Yeah. You didn't, you, no Alex. Balloons. You're at the party. You didn't even get to pull the string. I know. I tried. What happened? Oh, I tried. Yeah, no. Those it's balloons, like Alex uh... is saying, "Just give me the balloons. I'll take them <laughs> home to my boy." I know. Yeah, we got no balloons. Um, you know what was what? What about missing that opportunity to have to speak to the public and and you know as the winner always does, or does that matter because nobody cares about this stuff other than us? Well, no, you know I think it was unfortunate for for Doug. I mean, it was interesting. He made his his very kind of quiet speech at ten o'clock at night. Most people were probably not watching at that point, um, and no party members were standing behind him. It was all just his family, so he didn't actually get. Um, uh, the celebration that would have gone to, let's say, uh, Christine Elliott, which, you know, he earned that win whether you like him or not, fair and square. But I don't think that matters anymore. The bottom line, what you're starting to see, and it happened very, very quickly, was Christine Elliott conceded, and now the rebuilding begins. And they will... Uh, what happened in the last six to seven weeks is no more. They are going to be starting uh, fresh with this new leader, um, and in the next couple of weeks, you'll start to see some real movement as to where he's going. But there's no question. Um, this is all about Doug Ford. This is his to lose. We've seen PCs do it many, many times. Yeah, are you concerned um, about that? Are you, cons- are, you con- are you concerned that this is going to be another shot to the foot? Well, look, I think Ontarians have to ask themselves some pretty honest questions. And we know what, what has happened over the 15 years with the Liberals. We, we know because we see the state of the books. We know because we see the services uh, not being made available in, in uh, health care. We know because businesses are really struggling everywhere. This is what you get. If you want to buy the rhetoric of being scared by Doug Ford and all the stuff that they're going to make up, you know, you're never going to be changed. But uh, I do get the sense that... Yeah, but do you think people will go... You know, it's obvious they want change, but maybe they'll go to the far left and go right to uh, Andrea Horvath. Who knows? Well, out of the mind... Look, no one... No one in this province should be voting for the Liberals. If you hate Doug Ford, then you go vote for Andrea Horvath. But no one on just principle alone, Scott, should be rewarding the Liberals with anything. So let me ask you this. One more question before I go. Uh, Christine Elliott, what was her Mm -hmm. comment after conceding? uh, Will she be part of Team Ford? She said she will run. And, um, you know, look, I think Carolyn Mulroney would make a fantastic finance minister. I think Christine Elliott would make a hell of a health minister or deputy house uh, chief. Look, there's no question they would play a valuable role in a Doug Ford campaign. She says she's running. I'm not sure that will end up being the case. But, yeah, look, you know, she has every opportunity to make a big splash in the party. No question. Alex Pearson has been with us, host of On Point with Alex Pearson. You can hear tonight uh, on the Global News Radio Network right here on CHML. Alex, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, my friend. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Donald Trump, U.S. President. Getting together with Kim Jong-un, leader of North Korea. Yep, the fire and the fury, the buttons, the little rocket man, all of that sort of stuff. Now it's, uh, it's time to celebrate. It, it's, it's festivities, it appears, or at least that's the way this started. And now there seems to be uh, some conditions being put to this. Did we jump the gun here? What's going on? Uh, What's different now with this president than any other president in the past? Let's bring in Donald Baker, Department of Asian Studies, University of British Columbia. With us now, Donald, thank you so much for taking the time. We appreciate this. Good to talk with you. So how did this happen? How did we get here after considering the fire and fury and everything else? We see another example of Donald Trump acting impulsively. He's not the first U.S. president to be invited to meet with the North Korean leader. He's the first one to say yes. So why are we or why are some presenting this like it's a big uh, victory when every president has been asked to do this? It's just they've all decided not to because they felt it would give him or them recognition. I think it's historical amnesia. People forget. And also people are relieved that at least they're talking about talking rather than talking about fighting. Right. So. It is a nice change of tone, uh, but that's not a reason to exaggerate uh, this 
development and American uh, North Korean relations. So, can we attribute this all to the goodwill of the Olympics? Only in that the South Korean president took advantage of the fact that the North Koreans were willing to work with South Korea on having a peaceful Olympics to build on that to try to ease tension on the peninsula. So, definitely the Olympics provided a way to shift the narrative away from fighting to talking. How did this, uh, or even the prospects of this meeting, come about? Is this all due to uh, the South Korean president? Is he arranging this? It does appear that way. In fact, what's interesting is the North Korean media has not yet announced that Donald Trump has said he will meet with their leader. Uh, that's, an- South Korea. that's another question I had for you, Donald. How do you explain that? And, and you'd think if this is a victory from Kim Jong-un, he'd be, he'd be screaming this from the rooftops. How come he has kept it from his own people? Maybe he himself is skeptical that it really happened. You know? And we don't know how much of what the South Koreans are telling the Americans North Korea said, North Korea really said. It's very possible that South Korea is, is, is making both sides sound more palatable to the other than they really are. It's very possible. So uh, things aren't really as they seem for both parties here is what you're suggesting. That's what I suspect, yes. Yeah. So uh, that being said, when this was first brought up, uh, it seemed quite positive, and some were questioning whether he would be prepared or that there should be lists of conditions, and it was all about the meeting. Now it seems they pulled back a little bit from that, and the meeting will only take place if these conditions are met. Is that correct? Update us on that. They're, they're not being very clear about that. Uh, uh, they're not demanding explicitly, like they did in the past, that Kim Jong-un already agreed to denuclearization before they meet. They are insisting that he does not shoot off any missiles in the meantime or explode any atomic bombs in the meantime, and that he agreed to talk about denuclearization. So that, that is a change of tone from the White House, and that's good news. So will this happen? Will we see a picture of these two sitting down face-to-face? I don't know. First of all, the South Korean and North Korean leaders have to meet. They're supposed to meet in late April, and the arrangements for that are still uh, taking place. They haven't, haven't figured out exactly. They know where they're going to meet. They haven't figured out exactly what the agenda is going to be and so on. So we have to really see what happens between the meeting of President Moon of South Korea and, and Kim of North Korea, how that goes, before we can talk about the serious possibility of Donald Trump meeting Kim Jong-un. Uh, is this a big win for Trump? He'll portray it as such, but and maybe in the short term, it makes him look like he's a man who can break through uh, crises that bothered previous presidents, but it's really a potential serious loss. First of all, he's going to the, if he goes to the meeting, he's going to be woefully unprepared. Most of the South Korea, North Korea specialists in the U.S. government are no longer in the government. They've resigned. Um, he's, uh, you know, he, he doesn't, I don't think he quite realizes how this will play in North Korea, that this will be a big plus for the North Korean leader's image. And so I think Donald Trump is going into this ignorant, <laughs> unprepared, and what will happen if he gets angry that things don't work out the way he wants to his advantage, then the risk of a war will actually become much higher. And that's what scares a lot of us in the Korean studies field. Why hasn't, if everybody's viewing this, as a, or some are viewing, or his base, or he viewing this as a win, why hasn't any other president done this? Because it's not like they haven't had the opportunity to. They've all been invited. Well, they're both, they've been invited, and he's case, they, they, they wanted to do two things. First of all, they wanted firm commitment from North Korea before the meeting that North Korea would agree to either freeze or roll back its nuclear development program. They couldn't get that. And secondly, uh, they realized that going to North Korea without such an agreement in advance would just be a propaganda coup for the North Korean government. They weren't willing to give the North Koreans a propaganda coup. What about this? How much of this has to do with the fact that the sanctions are just hurting the country deeply and they need some relief of that? Is, how, what does that play? How does that play into this? I think that's part of it. Sanctions are beginning to bite. Although they, they're getting around the, uh, the embargo on fuel by doing more nuclear, doing more solar power. But I think if you look at North Korean history, North Korea has had a long history of playing off big powers against each other. They used to do that between Russia and China, and now you know China is a big uh, partner in the sanctions. But if they can talk to the United States and then go to China and say, 
you know, if you keep pushing us on these sanctions, we're going to get friendly to the U.S. and maybe tell the U.S. we're perfectly happy with them leaving U.S. troops in the Korean Peninsula and so on. Then they think they can do that to get China to back off of it. So they may be using this as a threat against China to get China to back down on the sanctions. So what would how would China or Russia feel about this proposed meeting between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump? Well, obviously, they're happy that for at least the next couple of months, it looks like there won't be any fighting. But uh, they also don't want an agreement. Neither one of them, neither Russia nor China, wants an agreement that Kim agrees to leave American troops in place on the peninsula from on forever and ever and ever. Because the troops on the Korean Peninsula are not just aimed at protecting South Korea against the North Korean invasion. They're also aimed at China and Russia. And the ultimate goal of China and Russia, of course, is to get those American troops out of there. So if Kim then comes to agreement with the U.S. saying we're fine with those troops, neither Russia nor China will be happy. What are the chances with all of this uh, chatter that there will be a withdrawal of U.S. troops from there? That's probably going to be a demand of the North Koreans. But the Americans just spent $11 billion, that's not an exaggeration, $11 billion building a new military base, the biggest U.S. military base in the world outside of the United States, uh, just south of Seoul just beyond artillery range of North Korean artillery. What are the chances that Americans are going to walk away from that $11 billion investment unless they get an awful lot in return? I I don't see it happening. Is this exactly what Kim Jong-un has been waiting for? Who's the advantage for here, Trump or Kim Jong-un, or has that yet to be determined? I suspect it is going to be Kim Jong-un, because he's been waiting for a long time. He is his father and his brother. Be accepted as an equal to the United States in the, in the international arena. And to have a one-on-one meeting between Trump and Kim Jong-un does give him the, the opportunity to say, see, we're respected now. We are recognized as a major power. I don't see what Trump can gain from this in the long term. In the short term, it helps him promote his image as a man who can make deals if a deal likely takes place. But I think in the long term, it's Kim Jong-un that's coming out ahead on this. Uh, just right now they're talking about putting conditions on this meeting now. That never came out at the beginning. Why would that have not all been done first as opposed to, yeah, we're going there, and then now some are suspecting whether it will even happen or not once these conditions are put in place? It's the way Donald Trump operates. The South Korean government sent representatives to the White House to brief Trump on what Kim Jong-un had offered, and they were shocked when Trump said, I accept it. He didn't even check with the the State Department, didn't check with his military people. He just went ahead and accepted it right away. That's the way he acts, right? He's very impulsive. That makes him look good in the short term, a decisive leader, I guess his base would say. But in the long term, it causes all sorts of problems. And explain that. What does he have to lose here? Well, he, he, he could go there totally unprepared, and he could end up negotiating an agreement with Kim Jong Un that would leave South Korea vulnerable, that would make America look weak. Remember, the North Koreans have been, they have seasoned negotiators who have been working with the Americans for over 30 years. And Donald Trump has no experience in these kind of international negotiations. So they could really talk him into it by praising him, by flattering him. Uh, we joke in the Korean studies field by offering him a Trump hotel in Pyongyang. Yeah. Uh, they, they could trick him into an agreement that would really, in the long term, really hurt American interests and, and American credibility in, in Asia. When will Kim Jong-un tell his people about this? That's a very good question. We're watching the news every day. I think he wants to make sure it's really going to happen, and then he'll announce it. He doesn't want to you know, announce it and then have it canceled, and he'll look bad then, right? So he wants to make, he wants to make sure it has maximum impact. What would this visit look like? Where would it take place? That's another problem. We don't want, at least on the North, North American side, we don't want Donald Trump flying to Pyongyang because it looks like he's going to pay court to Kim Jong-un. I don't, Kim Jong-un doesn't leave his country. Right? He's meeting the South Korean president in a building in the demilitarized zone, basically neutral territory. So it's possible that Donald Trump would meet him there. Somebody suggested he might try to meet in Beijing. But then again, North Korea doesn't want China getting involved because they afraid China will tell them what to do. So even the basics of where they could possibly meet are still undecided. Why doesn't the president invite him to the White House? Or perhaps, <laughs> or, or perhaps the Winter White House? Perhaps a little golf? Well, one rumor is to set up the meeting, Kim Jong-un might send his sister to the White House. That was a rumor that appeared in the Korean press this morning. Uh, 
I now, why would the, why would the, oh so that was in the South Korean press this morning, right? Right. right. And yeah. and why would he do that? Well, he, he, he see, his sister was a real charmer when she went to South Korea, right? Right. And so he's he's hoping that she can work her charms on Donald Trump. And we all know Donald Trump likes attracting young women, so maybe that would work. But I don't I don't think Kim Jong Un wants to be seen flying to Washington D.C. Because that would be seen by, by his people in North Korea as him almost surrendering to the Americans. He doesn't, doesn't want to do that. Does Donald Trump not see the advantage of having him on his soil as opposed to vice versa? You know, it's hard to tell what Donald Trump sees. He doesn't listen to the experts. Uh, his, his, um, you know, he doesn't have an ambassador in Seoul to tell him um, how to deal with the North Koreans. He does, his leading negotiator with the North Koreans has just resigned. I don't think, I, Donald Trump just goes for the the, the momentary headlines is what he wants. He doesn't think about the long term, I believe. Uh, how much of this is distraction as opposed to real politics? Well, obviously, Donald Trump's got a lot of things you want people to be distracted from, particularly that, uh, the problem with Stormy Daniels, <laughs> the mm. star, star that he had an affair with. Uh, he wants to distract people from the continued investigation into Russian influence and, and collusion with his campaign. So it. it that could be part of it as well. He definitely needs a distraction right now. So where does this go from here, Donald? I mean, they've set this for May. That's pretty close. So how will this unfold in the next two months? I've never seen this kind of summit meeting happen this quickly. I mean, is really insane. Well, even from a security standpoint. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, can you imagine Donald Trump going into the, the militarized zone right there a few feet from the North Korean border, meeting the North Korean leader, I don't know how they're going to carry that out. I really don't. Uh, do you think Dennis Rodman will be invited? <laughs> I would say, though, we should never know. I mean, you never know. I mean, Dennis Rodman has met Donald Trump. He's met Kim Jong-un, so he might be a person that can, you know, be an intermediary between them. Will China and Russia want to have a word with Donald Trump before he has a word with Kim Jong-un? I believe they definitely will. And also, of course, Japan as well. Japan's very upset, by the way, by not being informed about this sudden change in American policy. Yeah, definitely China and, and Russia are, are going to probably going to tell Donald, Donald Trump, go slow with this. Don't make any quick agreements that you may regret later. Because they realize that an agreement that immediately collapses could anger Donald Trump and lead to him launching a strike on North Korea. Are the two personalities uh, of Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump just bizarre enough that they could jive? <laughs> Possibly. They're both very egocentric. They're both very impulsive. <laughs> and so it's possible. But, I mean, it also comes with totally different perspectives. I mean, Kim Jong-un, what he wants is to be, is North Korea is to be a respected nation and be allowed to maintain its nuclear arsenal out of the same time he wants to have to, the sanctions ended so that foreign capital can pour into his country. I don't think Donald Trump's going to support those wishes of Kim Jong-un. So I, I can imagine them talking to each other freely, and but then disagreeing and walking away without any kind of an agreement at all, which would be a real embarrassment for the United States. Has Kim Jong-un, how often, when, this sounds like an ignorant question, but is he ever out of North Korea? Not since he's become the leader. I mean, he no. studied in Switzerland as a teenager. Right. He hasn't gone to China. Every other North Korean leader goes to China and Russia. He's never done that. So he really is isolated from the rest of the world because he won't leave North Korea because he wants, when he leaves, to be treated as the equal of the head of the state that he's visiting. And that's not going to happen. So he'd probably really like Mar-a-Lago. Oh, yeah, he would. He would love to go there. <laughs> this, have you ever seen anything as bizarre as this? No. <laughs> I've been studying Korea for 40-something years. No. Well, Donald Trump, first of all, he's, everything he does is surprising. But this is not the way to run foreign policy on an impulsive, oh, yes, I'll go, uh, decision. That's not, foreign policy should be taken in a much more careful, uh, sober manner. How how policy. How is this playing in South Korea, Donald? I remember when the Olympics were on, there was as much politics going on prior to the games. People in South Korea weren't happy when the North uh, Korean uh, contingent showed up. There were protests and such, although I don't know if that made it to South Korean uh, television or not. Uh, and, and the country was pretty much split on all of this. So how do they feel about this? Well, they're happy for right now. It looks like there won't be any fighting because people right. over there were concerned that war, that fighting might break out after the end of the Paralympics. Uh, they're happy, but they don't really expect anything important to come out of the Trump 
uh, Kim meeting, if that happened, they they are looking forward to the meeting of their president with the North Korean leader to see what comes out of that. And that's supposed to be the end of April. Do they feel that uh, do they feel threatened in the sense that, you know, Donald Trump sticks his nose in there again? If it works, it could be great. If it doesn't work, though, it could be the exact opposite. If you ask the average South Korean who might cause the next Korean war to break out, more say Donald Trump than say Kim Jong-un. Go ahead. Well, Kim Kim Jong-un. I mean, they know they know him. They know he knows the danger the uh, war on the peninsula posed to him personally. They're not so sure that Donald Trump is aware of the impact of a war on the Korean Peninsula have both on South Korea and the United States. Fascinating. Donald Baker has been with us, Department of Asian Studies, University of British Columbia. Donald, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good talking with you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. Of course, uh, lots talking about the legalization of cannabis, which is uh, supposed to be happening in Canada uh, this summer. Uh, Initially, there was chatter that it would happen by July 1st. Now it looks like it's going to be bumped back to late fall or sorry, uh, late summer or perhaps even early fall as uh, it it appears that the, uh, you know, the T's haven't been crossed and the I's dotted for uh, as far as regulating all of this sort of thing. Uh, What has come out now is the new logo. Uh, and it's going to be called, the store is the Ontario Cannabis Store. Uh, very plain uh, black and white packaging and very plain. Oh, it's just plain. It's, but isn't that what you want? Isn't that the idea here? But what about the glossy catalogs? What about the shiny stores, some having kitchens in them for demonstrations? I mean, it seems with, with alcohol, um, there's no shortage of marketing this monopoly. But I'm not sure uh, if this is a starting point for uh, the cannabis stores and whether they'll end up like the LCBO and, and you know, a monopoly uh, with marketing. I, I'm not sure. And again, I, I'm, I, I don't see the need to market a monopoly, but that's just my feeling. Let's bring in Dan Malik, health sciences professor, Brock University, uh, author of Try to Control Yourself, the Regulation of Public Drinking in Post-Prohibition, Ontario. He is with us now. Dan, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. It's got my pleasure. So I'm looking at the logo right now. If I can describe it, it says Ontario Cannabis Store on top of each other, plain black and white uh, capital letters, and then a a circle with OCS in the middle. Uh, Your thoughts on this? Should we be surprised? Uh, That it's it's so plain. Um, I don't think so. I mean, it's fairly middle range. It doesn't have a big picture of a leaf, which... Frankly, I'm tired of. <laughs> well, and neither does the LCBO store, for that yeah, matter. Exactly. Have a giant well, picture it's got of a maple leaf. Yeah, oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, You've looked closer than I have, Dan. Yeah, I know. So it lovingly. So um, I, you know, this takes us back. We've joked around this before. I remember being a little boy and going into the LCBO with my dad, and there was a man there with glasses and a white shirt and a tie, and yeah. you know, uh, I remember the smell of the stores more than anything. Mm-hmm. And you, and you, you know, you had to fill out a little pad of paper and then hand it through a little underneath a little uh, uh, kiosk thing or teller, like almost like a bank teller. Yeah. Is that what we're going to see here? It sounds like it's going to be uh, something like that. I, I guess they're. Um their arrangement with Shopify includes some sort of digital um, ordering system within the stores themselves, right? So, it, and they said, you know, there will be no um, products available for handling or, you know, anything. So it does sound like there will be elements of that. Everything's kept behind the counter component. Um, I, I'm curious. And, and so then you'd have a digital version of the form that people would fill out and that sort of thing. Uh, is what it sounds like. Um, and then uh, as I was reading about this, I was thinking, you know, I wonder if I wonder what kind of expertise will be behind the counter. Yeah, how right? do you know like, what you're buying? Yeah, whether you can... I mean, is it all the same? Uh, <laughs> will it all be the same? Uh, the, you mean the cannabis? Yeah, here's oh, your weed, jump it, in. Yeah, is yeah. That, I mean, will no, it be I, different? It sounds like, well, I, I don't know. Um, it sounds to me, though, like that's not going to be the case. That, that They're going to be getting different varieties from different... Uh, um, the different licensed vendors or licensed producers. So, so you will have a range. I don't know if you'd have the same range that you would find from um, in the current market, right? But there would be that element of the. How would they educate there. consumers yeah. on this? 
Uh, you mean on you know using the old, yeah using the old LCBO uh, model that we were joking about? How would, yeah. how do you you know? I guess they did the same thing in the old days with liquor. You didn't know what you were buying then. I mean, you just looked at the pad, right? Yeah, that kind of component was not uh, really something that the LCBO talked about back when they were beginning to roll out alcohol. I mean, there, some of the research I've done, I, I found that we assume as uh, people thinking back to the beginning of, of uh, public legal drinking again in Ontario, that the LCBO just wanted to restrict it. But in fact, they were very interested in making sure it was a positive, uh, legal, positive environment. So it could be the same kind of thing where they're going to be providing products. They want to make the legal product seem to be the most uh, appropriate and enjoyable product to have. Right? It's that two-sided thing. You're controlling, but you're marketing. Right. Uh, if that makes sense to you. So so that I would be very surprised if there were just people standing behind a counter with their arms crossed looking at you judgmentally as you order your weed. Right? <laughs> so, but you think there's an element, there'll be like an online element where you'll be able to, I guess you'll do your shopping on a screen? Yeah, that's definitely what they're saying. They're using the, the, the technology of Shopify to, to, they say, multi-platform data and and product and inventory management and stuff like that. Uh, it sounds to me like a lot of the online sort of shopping we do, where, you know, say you're looking at a, I don't know, you're looking at a book or something, and it gives you a description of what it is, you know, that sort of thing, um, as opposed to just a name of the, the cannabis um, variety or type and uh, a buy now sort of button. So there, there will be more information. It would be, it would be very surprising if they don't, because they are trying to make this uh, the legal uh, system something that is actually appealing to people uh, in alternative to the illegal system. So it can't just be a finger-wagging kind of component. It also right. has to be an encouragement of the proper way of consuming. What Will we know them. much about these stores or what they will look like prior to them being introduced? Or will it be one of these, oh, look at this? I imagine we're going to to know more about them as it comes along. I mean, right now we've got the, the delayed timeline. So it may be a bit of a sigh of relief from the people in the cannabis control, what is it called? The Ontario Cannabis Retail Corporation, right? The OCRC. Uh, Ontario um, Cannabis Store is the actual store. Well, that's the store, yeah. right? But mm-hmm. there is the organization that's running right. is the OCRC. And that's. And when you said to me, what do I think of this? I thought, oh, that's interesting because the LCBO is the LCBO. The store is the LCBO and the company is the LCBO. Mm. But they did do more of what Brewers Retail or Brewers Re- Brewers Warehousing Corporation did with the beer store. The beer right? store Remember right. what it was, the Brewers Retail. So is this available just going to eventually be the weed store or the pot store? <laughs> Not going to see that happen? I, I doubt it. I, I imagine. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's interesting because cannabis is very much the, the sort of sanitized name for marijuana or mm-hmm. weed or whatever, right? And that seems to be what we're seeing more. I was reading some comments on, on one of the news stories, and someone said it's a lot like a lot of the other gentrified sort of cannabis stores are very clean-looking, very um, not very flashy, and they use the word cannabis, right? So uh, the LCBO, how do they justify glossy magazines, uh, store yeah. stores that are flashy, and some even have demonstration kitchens. They're yeah. tasting all the time. Like, how do you justify that, and then compare to this? Well, I think what we see with the LCBO stores is, you know, if, if you take the long view, it's it's been a long time uh, coming for the LCBO to have stores like their what is it called, food and drink? Uh, or sorry, magazines like their food and drink thing and the d- demonstration kitchens and stuff like that, which. Uh, from a lot of the stores I know that had them, don't seem to have them anymore. Those kitchens, so I yeah. don't know if I haven't seen one in a while. while. Yeah, yeah, but um, so so that was part of a long cultural change in the attitude towards drink. They certainly didn't have them back, uh, even I'd say thirty years ago, um, and uh, and certainly not in the twenties when when prohibition ended. So so this is something about the cultural place and perception of alcohol. Uh, and so it could be the same thing with cannabis over time. We're not going to see it at the beginning. We're going to see a fairly um, conservative approach to this uh, and uh, uh, sort of figuring out where the where the you know the sweet spot is in the way of the between marketing and controlling. 
right? Um, to to draw the a large enough number of people away from the illegal market to start to see that market maybe dry up. At least that's the hope. Other um, than other than the logo and as you mentioned the um, the kiosks or whatever that will that will drive people to a screen and shop uh, sort of online and then go pick it up at, or at the store rather in the store within the store. Yeah. Um, uh, do we know anything more about how these will look or how they will operate? Is that all the information we have so far? Uh, it's been fairly scanty. Um, I think probably because they haven't quite figured out all of their systems. I mean, the arrangement with Shopify, I think, was just um, sort of inked around the beginning of this year. So they probably don't have the, the exact um, the way that the interface will look, for example. And uh, I imagine they finished designing the stores, but each uh, you know location is going to be a little different. We do know that the people behind the uh, behind the counters are going to be specially trained uh, members of the the current union, uh, so they'll they'll be experienced in uh, controlling controlled substances and in cannabis. And I don't know if part of that experience will be in in the in sort of in advising on cannabis or if it's just going to be in how to stop it. But other than that, no, I, I, well, I haven't heard much. And uh, the, the media that we see hasn't yet given us a lot of information about the internal workings of those stores. Are other provinces ahead of this than us? Do we know more about, uh, certainly we, we know about other uh, provinces that have had other forms of distribution, yeah. but are they ever any farther along than Ontario is? I, I can't really comment. I haven't seen a lot that, that gives a sense that there's more um, certainty on the, the different formats. I do know that when you get into some of the provinces that have opened it up to uh, more of a free market uh, approach within a controlled framework, uh, each company that's going to be involved in it will be able to do it their own way and have their own branding and stuff like that. So that won't necessarily be released until uh, the store's open. How concerned are you that this is happening too fast and systems, whether it's law enforcement, uh, regulation, what have you, are not in place or we're not ready? Are, are we ready for this? Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not concerned. And one of the reasons I'm not concerned is because when we hear about panic about law enforcement, it's not as if cops have never had to deal with cannabis before. Yeah. Right? It's, it is... Um, possibly more um, uh, a larger volume of people using the substance and things like you know driving intoxicated and I'm not dismissing that as a concern by any means but cannabis legalization and um, loosening of cannabis laws has been going on around the world for more than just the last 18 months right um, there will take some time for police services and other services to catch up but i don't think it's it's a dangerous situation it's just something where people who are resistant to these sorts of changes will throw in these hitches to try to slow down the process which is exactly what we're seeing in the senate will this be delayed enough that it will become an election issue do you think do you think another party would look at this differently and and go backwards on this or once you get this genie out of the bottle you can't put it back I think it would be really tough to get to put the genie back in the bottle, but I think the election issue that it could be would be something like, look at how they made this promise and they dragged their heels because they didn't want any problems to be shown before election time. And I think that the liberals have been wanting this to get done so that a lot of and any potential problems that come up could be dealt with before the election. So it could be, you know, from what I've read, it's been a lot of, delaying tactics, not stated um, for this reason, but clearly for the reason of, of making legalization closer to the election time so it could be an election issue. And, and, and both sides, all parties will spin it in a different way. One is they broke their promise. One is look at the chaos they've created. You know, all of these things could be uh, taken in different directions. And the liberals can say, look, we, we fulfilled our promises, but the other parties were delaying it. So, you know. Uh, other provinces have obviously gone with more um, a more liberal view of how they're going to distribute this, whether it's storefronts or what have you, compared to what uh, the LCBO and what we've done here in Ontario. Mm-hmm. Are you concerned that once this all rolls out, that um, 
the Ontario model will look so primitive compared to the other ones, especially with an online ordering uh, of this product, a lot easier than, say, I don't know, ordering a case of wine. Will people just go for, buy from other provinces? Like yeah, how, how do you do how do you how do you regulate the person who's living in in Hamilton or Toronto and doesn't want to put up with the BS of the Ontario cannabis store and then just orders theirs in from Quebec or BC? Well, uh, yeah, especially when in border communities, uh, it's going to be difficult, say, to stop just as now it is stop someone from Ottawa from going across the river and, and buying Gatineau. Um, I don't know if they would have system i imagine they would have some kind of system in place to make sure that the people buying the product are from the province yeah. where they are legally allowed to buy it right so if you have a distribution center in uh, alberta and they're selling a wider variety of cannabis than in ontario i don't know if someone from ontario with an ontario address on their credit card could right. an ontario ma- mailing address could have it sent there so you think there will be rules and and regs put in place to prevent that I imagine there will be. Will this be Uh, impossible to manage as easily as alcohol was or is? um, Impossible. I don't understand what you mean. In the set, this is, you know, it's been quite easy for Ontario to stay behind the times and do what they're doing as far as alcohol. They just put it in the stores, you know, when other people, other provinces have done it, you know, decades ago. Um, will this will, will this model, which some are looking at as being quite archaic already, uh, will we see these changes quicker because we have come so far with the LCBO and just what other provinces are doing? I mean, will this make uh, Ontario um, at a disadvantage? Will this put Ontario at a disadvantage? I don't know if it will put it as a disadvantage, but I think there's a, something to be said for what you just said about um, things moving a little faster than, say, they did. 75 years ago, um, actually 90 years ago, right? 80, 80, 90, 91 years ago when the LCBO started, because we had the same distribution system pretty much for 50 years, right? Until the 70s. Yeah. I don't think we're going to see that. I think we're going to see uh, a, a more rapid change in attitude, and partly because, unlike prohibition, which was a temporary, really a temporary halt in sales of, of alcohol, um, there there is a growing uh, positive image of cannabis that uh, that has has driven this, as opposed to a recognition that prohibition, you know, in the, in right. the te- teens and twenties, prohibition was just seen as man, this really didn't work. Yeah. So, so it's a different kind of uh, out, there's a different kind of environment around cannabis. It's certainly many people are still very concerned about it, and the language around health is still a very powerful demotivator around um, uh, around too much liberalization. But I think that stuff will be addressed more quickly than, say, 50 years from now. And so then these changes may take place, especially since, like you said, now we've got um, certain types of booze in the supermarket. I don't know if someone were to ask me, would it be more likely for you to be able to get spirits in the supermarket before a loosening up of cannabis laws and cannabis sales, that would be a really interesting question. I couldn't answer it, but, mm. you know, because they each have their own yeah. kind of perception uh, and, and, and types of dangers embedded in, in those, in some people's eyes. Dan Malik has been with us, health sciences professor, Brock University, author of Try to Control Yourself, the Regulation of Public Drinking in Post-Prohibition, Ontario. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.